As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello, this is Eric Rivenis with Minnesota's Most Notorious, and this is part two of the Alice Matthews murder case. On October 14, 1913, a 20-year-old man named Alfred Harvey Driscoll was suddenly in the news, arrested by police in Oak Park, Chicago, and booked in the local precinct station on the charge of vagrancy. After a few hours in jail, he told detectives that he had a secret to reveal. He had killed a young woman in Minneapolis, he admitted, named Alice Matthews in June of 1912. The Chicago detectives were not familiar with the case, but Driscoll was evidently convincing enough in his insistence that they believed he was telling the truth. But Minneapolis Police Chief Oscar Martinson wasn't having it. They'd been down this road before, he explained. The Chicago police didn't know the details, and he did. You can say for me that the Minneapolis police will take no action in regard to this so-called Driscoll confession, Martinson told reporters. We know the story that he told the Chicago police, every word of it, and we, of course, investigated every angle of it that would throw some light on the murder of the Matthews girl. All of our investigations led us more firmly to believe that his obsession was the workings of a distorted mind. He finally admitted to Detective Hansen that there was no truth in his story, but we continued the investigation until we were absolutely sure he knew nothing of the murder. Driscoll was being stubborn about this, though. When the Minneapolis Police Department hadn't acted against him after his first confession, he'd easily spilled his guts with little prompting to the Chicago Police Department instead but he'd gotten much of it wrong, including the date. She had been murdered in March of 1912, not June. The Tribune felt fit to explain to its readers that Driscoll had a troubled past. Starting in 1909, he'd spent over a year in the Red Wing Reformatory after having stolen several bicycles and some money from farmers in New Brighton, where he'd grown up. 
After being paroled for a number of months, including during the time of the Matthews murder, he asked to be confined once more at Red Wing. Evidently, he was having difficulties coping on his own and suffered from melancholia or depression. When they refused to take him, he had told authorities there that he had murdered Alice Matthews when he had been in the Twin Cities during that time and living with his mother. His mother told the police her son had been at home in bed during the time of the murder. Investigators, upon questioning Driscoll, were convinced he knew nothing of the more intimate details of the murder and dropped him as a suspect almost as quickly as he'd confessed. The police had discounted him so swiftly that local reporters hadn't even caught on, and he was never mentioned as a suspect initially. Two days after his confession to Chicago police, Driscoll had recanted. He'd come to Illinois, he told a Chicago Tribune reporter, for a change of pace and to look for work while living with his father, Adelbert Driscoll, in Elgin. When he'd failed to find employment, he decided to go back home to his mom. But without money, he figured the only way to return would be to trick the police into escorting him back and picking up the cost of transportation. In desperation, he made the story up. Once he was back in Minnesota, he explained, he would seek work cutting trees in the North Woods. But the ploy, of course, hadn't worked. Chief Martinson had wired Chicago and told police to release him immediately. In the next few days, local papers would debate what could be done about these false confessions. The Minneapolis Tribune printed an article entitled, Diseased Minds Prompt Stories of Horrid Deeds. Police constantly on watch for fake confessions of dark crimes. Law refuses to convict on unsupported word of suspects. The article went on to explore Driscoll's mental condition and list reasons why he might have done what he had done. While manipulating law enforcement to better his living environment might have been the surface explanation for his confession, it was a depraved boy's desire to pose as a hero that was ultimately explained as the real reason for his behavior. It was his own warped way of offering conclusion to a murder that had put a constant sense of fear into the community ever since it had happened. So while the police scoffed at Driscoll's confession, they had no one else either. So it went cold, cold for over a year and a half, until finally a former suspect came forward, a man Minneapolis detectives were very familiar with. Driscoll confessed once again. By this time, Driscoll had moved to Duval's Bluff, Arkansas, under the name James Wilson, he surrendered to the city marshal on June 1st, 1915. A Tribune reporter found his mother in Fridley and gave her the news first. Has Alfred confessed again? She asked. Why, you know, he isn't just right mentally. He left here two years ago to join the army. I heard from him April 13th that he was in Panama. I know he was home on the night the Matthews girl was killed. It was months after the murder that he had first confessed. I think he probably wants someone to bring him back to Minneapolis, where he could easily clear himself and be very near home. I thought he was in Panama. More investigation into Driscoll's past found some very interesting news. 
he had been discharged from the army as unfit for service because it was suspected he had used dope. He was part of the hospital corps with easy access to drugs, the paper noted. Hennepin County Sheriff Otto Langham found the situation completely laughable and reiterated what investigators had said all along. What does this third confession of Alfred Driscoll to the murder of Alice Matthews amount to, in your opinion, he was asked. Well, I should say to something less than 30 cents, he replied. I don't think enough of the confession to go to Arkansas after Driscoll in light of his previous confessions. Twice before he had said he had killed the Matthews girl, authorities with the case were satisfied after an investigation that he had nothing to do with the crime. Langham revealed a bulky typewritten document he'd received from Arkansas police titled The Confessions of Alfred Driscoll, Volumes 1 and 2. Volume 3 is on the way from Duvall's Bluff, Langham explained, and I imagine with a tint of dry humor. Besides the Matthews murder, Driscoll had also said he had been a member of a band of boy bandits who had $20,000 worth of jewels buried near New Brighton, which evidently sent every boy in the area out with a shovel looking for alleged buried treasure. After three days in jail, instructions from Minneapolis were wired to his jailers in Arkansas. Release him. We don't want him. So three confessions and three very stern refutations by authorities would normally put the matter to rest. But Alfred Driscoll wasn't giving up, and he made his way back to Minneapolis on his own. And he still insisted that he had murdered Alice Matthews. Driscoll had a problem, though, in that he had cried wolf evidently so many times that neither the Hennepin County Sheriff nor the Minneapolis Police Department wanted anything to do with him. They would refuse to talk to him when he called or see him when he showed up at the station. Driscoll, undeterred, decided then to create a ruse to break himself into jail. He found a business card with the name Matt Ferris on it and used that identity to write to the Minneapolis Tribune, explaining that he had a story that would solve the mystery of the Matthews murder. The only thing he wanted in return was a ticket to the Gaiety Theater and dinner afterwards. He described in the letter what he looked like and what he would be wearing that night, so a Tribune reporter could meet him at the theater, and after the show they could discuss the story over a meal. Instead of taking him up on it, the Tribune turned the letter over to Minneapolis police, and Detective Thomas Gleason was assigned to follow up. Albert Driscoll, a.k.a. Matt Ferris, was given his theater ticket by the newspaper, but it was Detective Gleason, disguised as the reporter, who waited for him there. As planned, Driscoll told the story to Gleason, and it was convincing enough that Gleason took him to the police station for further questioning. There he was grilled for two more hours. Interestingly, none of his interrogators including the current police chief Martinson, had ever met Alfred Driscoll. He'd only been questioned in person about the murder once, and it had been after his first confession in September of 2012. The original detective who had taken Driscoll's statement, Lewis Hansen, had died of heart trouble on July 14, 1914, 
at just 44 years old. Matt Ferris, a.k.a. Driscoll, brought his alter ego up almost immediately during the interrogation and made him a second perpetrator in the crime. He said that they'd done the murder together after a night of drinking. Gleason asked questions, listened, and eventually figured it out. Aren't you Alfred Driscoll? he asked. Driscoll broke down in tears, confessed immediately, and then repeated the story, leaving Ferris out this time. He had been haunted, he claimed, tormented by what he had done since the night of the murder. It was love madness that had caused him to commit the horrible deed. What follows is Alfred Driscoll's confession. I was at my home in New Brighton. My mother and my stepfather, Louis Doherty, went to bed about 8 o'clock. I went to bed too. At 9.30, I got up. I couldn't sleep. I wanted to see a girl in Minneapolis. I crawled out the window, walked to Central Avenue Road, and was downtown about 10.30. I knew Alice Matthews. I had met her with another girl and a man at the Kaiserhof about three months before. I had been out with her several times to theaters. I saw her that night in front of the Metropolitan Theater. We walked down towards the Bridge Square and then got on a Cedar and 38th Street car. I was not dressed very well, so I didn't sit with her on the car. She got off at Longfellow Avenue. I got off at the next block, 19th Avenue. I walked back and we met. She was a little ashamed of my looks. That's why we got off at different places. We sat down on a vacant lot near the corner of Longfellow and 38th Street. I was infatuated with the girl. I asked her to marry me. She refused and we argued for some time. I had a revolver in my pocket. I told her I would commit suicide. She asked me not to do that, but she wouldn't marry me. Then something snapped in my mind. I choked her. I remember seeing her lying on the grass. I realized I had killed her, but don't remember exactly what I did. I don't know what else happened. I intended to stay in Minneapolis and find George Bushbaum in the morning for a job. But I went back to New Brighton. I got there about 4 a.m. and crawled into the house again, and the folks never knew I was out. We didn't get daily newspapers, and about two weeks later, I heard about the murder. I worked around farms out there for about five months, and then went back to Red Wing. Driscoll admitted that his guilty conscience had tortured him. That was the reason he kept leaving Minnesota, even joining the Army, to try and run away from the pain he felt. It was the reason why he'd developed a drug problem, too, and the only way that he could alleviate that pain was to take the punishment for what he had done. Chief Martinson was convinced enough this time to at least arrest him and investigate his story more fully. They'd check with Alice's friends and witnesses that night to see if any of them could identify him, but he wouldn't commit completely to Driscoll's guilt. This man may be the murderer of Alice Matthews, 
or he may be a man with a form of insanity which convinces him that he is guilty of the deed, Martinson told reporters. I am convinced that he believes absolutely that he killed Alice Matthews. A thorough investigation will be made to find out the truth and verify and substantiate every statement made about himself. The police wasted no time in pursuing this investigation either. The following night, Driscoll was taken to the site of her murder. Night was chosen as the time to take him there so that Driscoll's rehearsal of his self-alleged acts might be more vivid, wrote the Tribune. Driscoll was allowed to direct the driver of the police car. The route followed was that of the streetcar line Alice Matthews took to ride home on the night of the murder. Driscoll warned Detective Gleason that since he had not been over the route since the night of the crime, he might make slight mistakes. He stopped the police car at 35th Street and Cedar Avenue South and said, this is where Alice left the streetcar. A block further on, he stopped saying, this is where I got off. We walked back to a little store. He pointed out the store. Driscoll then directed the driver to go on towards the Matthews home. At 36th Street and 20th Avenue, he indicated a vacant lot where he said he and Miss Matthews sat down to rest. This spot is less than 20 feet from the place the body was found, the paper noted. There wasn't any cement sidewalk here then, though, Driscoll said. The detective then learned that the sidewalk had been built since the murder. Driscoll was not able to take police to the exact spot of the murder, though, instead about a block away. But police on the scene weren't extremely concerned about this hiccup, as it did closely resemble the area, and there had been a three and a half year lapse in time since Driscoll said he had been there last. Like his confession the night before, Driscoll again went into the details. I saw her lying there after something in my head had snapped, he said. I was frightened. I realized I had killed her. I ran from the place and went home. By this time, the Matthews family had left their original home and had moved a few doors up the street. The police took Driscoll there and Alice's stepmother, Mrs. Matthews, who was at home, looked at him closely. I don't think this man killed Alice, she said. When asked why she thought so, she said she could not explain. Detective Gleason seemed satisfied with the trip to the murder site and towed the company line when asked to give his thoughts. Driscoll's exhibition shows he either knows something of the crime or is possessed of a particular form of insanity. And there wouldn't be any chances taken with this possibility. Court Commissioner W.E. Bates soon impaneled three alienists to examine Driscoll's mental condition. Doctors Quimby, Foote, and Crafts compromised the examining board, and they began to ask their questions over the course of an hour. And new tidbits were revealed to the press about this questioning, including details about Driscoll's emotional state since the murder. While it had been first reported that he had been racked with guilt after her death, 
Driscoll now tempered this notion a bit. I felt a little bad, he said, but no worse than anyone who had just killed a pet rabbit. I did not know the girl was dead for sure until several weeks afterwards when I read in the paper that a man was held for her murder. He'd confessed, he said, because he wanted to forsake the world. Not leave it, but just sent to some sort of institution. I knew that I was not just right mentally, and I thought if I was arrested, they might send one to an asylum, he explained. Even if they had sent me to a penitentiary, I would be satisfied. Nearly every prisoner sentenced for life is pardoned after a few years. I did not confess because my conscience bothered me. The other confessions were just made on impulse. So in other words, Driscoll was now saying that his main reason for his confession was that he wanted to be taken care of for a while in some sort of public institution. Be it an asylum or a prison, he didn't care. He just needed a break from the rigors of life. Part of his troubles came from his addiction to cocaine, which had happened in the army. He had worked in the camp pharmacy and quickly became addicted to it. When asked by the panel about the details of the murder, he gave the same account he had in his most recent confession while pointing out that he hadn't mutilated the body. He also made a big deal about the fact that he'd worn threadbare old clothes when he had met her far inferior to her own dress, and that's why she had asked not to sit next to him during the streetcar ride. Strangely, though, when asked to identify her dress, which he had made a big deal out of, he couldn't remember what it looked like. The fact that he hadn't sat next to her during the streetcar ride does jibe with some of the earlier accounts by passengers who had said that Alice Matthews had sat alone. The alienists also questioned his mother, Mrs. Esther Doherty, and she told them that her son had had a pretty rough childhood growing up. His biological father had been implicated in a theft and was a heavy drinker, which had led to their divorce when Alfred was just nine years old. She also revealed that the reason he had asked to return to Red Wing Reformatory, he had told her, was that he was involved in a secret society. When he had refused to do the bidding of this secret society, he then was worried that its members would inflict their revenge on him, and he thought he might be safe behind the reformatory's locked doors and tall walls. His mother had also insisted that her son had been home that night. She was sure of it, but contradicted one statement that he had made when he had learned of Alice's death. She said that they had together read about the murder the day after it had happened in the newspaper and had discussed it several times at the table. When Driscoll was asked by reporters what he thought of his examination by alienists, he laughed at the whole thing. Of course I'm sane, he told reporters from his cell in the Hennepin County Jail. A lot of people think I don't know what I'm talking about. I have tried to convince them. This examination is a joke and interested me only as such. I have no more to say about the whole thing. 
The next day, the alienists made public their findings. He was insane, they had decided, and suffered from monomania. Most of their questioning, it was revealed, had to do with time. Albert's mother had insisted that she had seen her son go to bed at 11 p.m., not the 8.30 p.m. he had told police. And if that was the case, he could never have met Alice Matthews downtown at 10.30 p.m., like he had claimed to have done. Driscoll had also rambled under questioning, the alienists said, failing to remember details that he had reported in his confession just days earlier. It hadn't helped either when Driscoll had told the alienists that he was a direct descendant of King Alfred the Great. So I did a quick Wikipedia search on monomania. It says that in 19th century psychiatry, monomania was a form of partial insanity conceived as a single pathological preoccupation in an otherwise sound mind. Dr. Foote explained it to the newspapers in his own way. Monomania is one of the most difficult forms of insanity to detect. Often the patient is perfectly normal on all except one subject. Such is the case with Driscoll. He suffers from the delusion that he is a murderer. Often in cases of monomania, the patient forms the delusion that he is a king. Driscoll has explained logically all of the events that led up to the crimes he believes he committed. So that was the end of it. He was declared insane and the police released him because he wasn't insane enough to be committed to an asylum. There are some strange things to this, of course. The most obvious to me is that this one-hour examination seemed to be more about disproving his alibi than determining his psychological state. The only thing he had said that truly seemed to be out of the ordinary for these psychiatrists, at least from what was reported, was that Driscoll believed he was a descendant of someone famous. Honestly, we've probably all met the occasional person who really wants to believe that they have a famous ancestor. That doesn't seem that big of a red flag to me, but I'm certainly no mental health professional. But the most striking thing about Dr. Foote's statement from my perspective is that he said that their group diagnosis, monomania, was one of the most difficult forms of insanity to detect. The fact that they only met with him for an hour and much of that was him retelling his account of the murder to them seems pretty absurd. I would think that coming to such a quick conclusion of such serious significance for Driscoll himself, his family, the Matthews family, the police and the community seems pretty darn irresponsible. Yes, the science of psychiatry was still a pretty new concept, so that needs to be taken into consideration, of course, but still. And couldn't it have been Driscoll's mother who was wrong about the time he had gone to bed? This alibi had been the one thing that had prevented the police from seriously looking at Driscoll as a suspect initially. And now, it again would be the final factor in determining whether he would be tried as the murderer of Alice Matthews. All based on his mother's insistence that he had gone to bed earlier than he claimed that he had. 
No other suspects would ever be arrested in her death after that, by the way. The case went cold and remains cold. To my knowledge, the Minneapolis Police Department never reopened it. For decades afterwards, whenever a young woman met an untimely death in Minneapolis, especially one that remained unsolved, papers would bring up the Alice Matthews case. She lived in the minds of people for years, a frightening reminder of an uncaught murderer who might murder again. As for Alfred Driscoll, he would appear in print once more, almost five years after his final Alice Matthews confession. On August 13, 1920, a man living at 1700 4th Avenue South in Minneapolis had told a frightening story to police. He said he had been walking along the road on 54th Street and Central Avenue when three men jumped out from behind a tree and threw him to the ground. Two of the men bound him, gagged him, and held him down, while the third man poured lie all over his feet. Then they ran off. This man later said he laid there for two hours before anyone heard his cries. A car finally stopped and an ambulance was summoned. The next day it was confirmed that this man was none other than Alfred Driscoll of the Alice Matthews murder case. And he quickly admitted that he had manufactured the story of being attacked. Evidently he'd soaked his own feet with lye, now burned so badly he couldn't walk. The reason he'd done it, he claimed, was to incite some sympathy from his wealthy biological father in Elgin, Illinois. But when hospital authorities contacted the elder Mr. Driscoll, his father had a different story to tell. Our boy is 26 years old now, and his mother and I haven't seen him since last May. The boy has been a wanderer for years. When still in his teens, he used to run away and be gone for weeks, and sometimes months at a time. I have helped him out of many scrapes, but he would not stay at home. It seemed the only time we would hear from him would be when he was in trouble. I would like to go to Minneapolis to see him and take care of him, but I can't. I haven't the money. We will wait and hope that he recovers and comes back home. Driscoll would end up spending several weeks in the hospital, according to doctors, which might have been just what he wanted, a chance again to rest, withdraw from his daily difficulties for a while. Later in life, Alfred would get married and divorced twice and have one child. He'd work, among other occupations, as a cook and a laborer and would die in California in 1967 at age 73. So I'm curious as to what you make of the whole thing. There's not a lot to go on, unfortunately, with this case. There was no trial, so no transcripts. The police file on the case from my understanding, doesn't exist anymore. So we really only have newspaper accounts to go on. I honestly found Driscoll's last confession and account of the murder pretty convincing. His obsession, especially with the differences in how they they had allegedly dressed that night, doesn't seem like something that someone would make up. Um, it, It rings true to me. It explains why she'd sat alone and gotten off on the streetcar alone 
according to Albert Savage. And Savage had remembered a man walking behind her. From Savage's perspective, and I'm sure the perspective of other readers when that had been reported, the man had been stalking her, following her. But Driscoll's explanation makes sense too. She'd been too ashamed to walk next to him in his state of dress, especially in her neighborhood, where she could have been seen by passing friends or neighbors who could have easily passed judgment on her. It was, after all, the early 1910s, and outward appearances were extremely important to people. She was a young woman who worked hard, came from a middle-class family, and was very likely striving as best she could to dress and act as far above her economic situation as she could. For many young women during this time, unfortunately, one of the only ways to advance themselves was to marry up. And Driscoll was a big step down in her eyes, no doubt. And he was upset about this and angry that she was publicly spurning him. He was desperate and blurted out a marriage proposal, which would have been doomed from the start. I mean, she wouldn't even sit next to him in the streetcar. When she said no, he snapped to use his words. And according to his account, of course, we don't know if this is true or not, but it doesn't seem far-fetched. Unfortunately, though, it seems as though the police department had completely ceased their investigation once he had been declared insane by that panel of alienists. No follow-up with her friends to see if they recognized him as the man who had met up with her downtown. It was over. And he was so insistent, four times confessing, and three of the four confessions rebuked. I mean, that's persistence. But my views mellowed out. (laughs) Once I'd found the story about Driscoll burning his own feet with lie and making up a story about it. And that confirms, I think, more than anything else we have, information-wise, a a doctor's diagnosis of a mental illness. And there's so much wrong with that. He was obviously crying out for attention in the most extreme form possible. And his confessions to Alice Matthews' murder could have been the result of that same kind of despair. So this ends the story of the murder of Alice Matthews. If you'd like to see photos of the crime scene and the main figures in the story, go to Minnesota's Most Notorious Facebook page. Leave me some feedback if you have some time on what you believe to be the truth in all of this. Until next time.